The following audio was recorded at Stone Oak Bible Church and is part of our series in 1 John. For previous messages or for more resources, visit us at stoneoakbible.com. Happy Father's Day. I hope it started well for you. Uh, the fact that, you know, Game 7 happens to land on a Father's Day is a nice touch, isn't it? For those of you who will enjoy it, I hope you do. Uh, so this morning, we if you have your Bibles, you can grab them. We're going to be in 1 John. We're going to be in chapter 5. And as you can probably tell, uh, we've been in this, this book for a while. And as you can probably tell, as you look at your Bible, you realize we are almost at the end. And so I wanted to give you a heads up on where we're headed, where we're going after we, after we finish with 1 John. Uh, and church... I'm excited about this. Have you ever wondered about our beginning? How did all of this begin Uh, in a world, in a community that tells us that is very kind of anti to the idea that God had anything to do with it? How do we engage with that? How do we talk about our beginning, the beginning of our world, the beginning of humanity, what it means to be a human? Uh, I am so excited because as we look at this, what we're going to ask is, what does the book of Genesis tell us? So uh, what we're going to do in this series is we're going to walk through the book of Genesis and we're going to talk about our beginnings, how all of this began, how all of this got its start, not only about just creation in general, but also us as people, us as people, how did we begin? How, how did that start? Now, something is interesting when you think about Genesis. Uh, many of the stories that we look at in Genesis, uh, we, we kind of push over to our children's department. That these are great stories to tell our kids and to put on felt boards and to just rock out Noah and, and all of that stuff, right? My hope in this series is that we pull these stories back out of our kids' books, which they're great stories to tell our kids, don't get me wrong, but that we pull them out of those books and that we look at them for what they are, and that is that God put them in our Bibles for a reason, not only to tell our kids, but for us to look at and for us to grow in our knowledge of him. And so overall, here's my goal. Um, Through this series, not only did all of creation and all of our beginnings find its place in this book, but, but also churches, we think about it, the story of redemption begins in this book. We talk so much about the gospel and how, it's, how it transforms everything. Well, well, church, we see the beginnings of the gospel in this book, and, and our story as God's children really starts here. So I want to invite you to be a part of that. We are going to jump into this new book, into this new series on July 10th. So we're, we're getting close. I, I hope I hope that you're able to to join us for that. But this morning, we get to look at an incredible and beautiful text. Just an absolutely beautiful text. And so having said that, uh, church, would you pray with me as we kind of shift gears and we look at 1 John 5. God, we, uh, we thank you for this time. I thank you for Richard and for Brian for just leading us in worship. I thank you for what you're doing in our church. God, I thank you for the time that we have spent in the book of 1 John, and and God, I just pray that you continue to open our eyes, 
to your truth, that we would, that we would see you more clearly, God. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, so as we look at, uh, we're going to be in verses 6, and we'll end in 13 this morning. But as we look at these, uh, it was helpful for me to kind of shape my understanding of this text um, by imagining something, uh, imagining a court scene, a courtroom scene. Um, uh, Imagine a lawyer uh, who in this courtroom is trying to present an argument. He's trying in front of a jury and judge, he's trying to present his argument in a way that makes his case, that shows the validity of his case. Um, Now, I am not a lawyer. I have read some books, though. I've seen the movies. I've seen the shows. So I assume I know pretty much everything there is to know about this. But when you're trying, as a lawyer, to make this case, right, when you're trying to show that, that the truth of your case, you need a rock star witness. You need someone who can testify that will just make your case a slam dunk, right? You, 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 need, you need that. Now, if, if. If you could come up with not one, but two of these, whoo, the jury, the judge would have no, no other option but to see the validity in, in your case and in your, in your argument. Now, imagine if, if, imagine the scene, if, if you as a lawyer were to present not one, not two, not three, not four, but five rock star witnesses to make your case. Right? There would be no, no, no question that, of course, you know, the jury, the judge, they're going to see the validity in your, in your case. It's like uh, the lawyer could do kind of a mic drop at that point and be like, now you know. You know? I know they don't have real mics. It's proverbial. Um, but that would be the case. You would make your argument and you could, you could move on. Well, now, with that scene in mind, hopefully this will make sense. With that scene in mind... I want us to look at our text, and as I read um, this text, at least the first five verses of it, I want you to pay careful attention to all of the testify, testimony, witness language as we look at these, as these verses. So to put it in perspective, I'm about to read five verses, and in the span of five verses, he uses the language seven times think he's telling us something. So let me read this uh, to us, and then let's, let's dive in. It says, this is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree Verse 9, if we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. So, Here's our scene. All right, we have this scene, and, and John calls five witnesses one by one 
to testify. So we have five witnesses. We see the water, we see the blood, we see the spirit, we see the father, and I'll call the last one the whoever. So, so the water, the blood, the spirit, uh, the father, and the whoever, one by one giving their testimony. And what is that testimony? Let's look at verse 11. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his son. So all of these witnesses give their testimony, make their case. I mean, remember, we really only need one or two rock star witnesses, but here we have five all witnessing in one voice, in one argument, all in one message that God has given us eternal life through, in and through his, his son. So let's look at these witnesses. Uh, witness number one, the water. The water. What on earth is this a reference to? Uh, the water. Uh, Christian scholars, theologians have given so many options to what John is referring to by, by saying the water. But it's funny, if you look at all these options, all of the options revolve around one thing, and that is the baptism of Jesus Christ. That the water here is a reference to the baptism of, of Jesus Christ that we see in Matthew and Mark and, and Luke uh, that we have recorded for us. And this is the scene, uh, if, you're, if you're not as familiar with it, uh, this is the scene. Jesus was approximately 30-ish years old, and, and he comes down to the Jordan River. And as he walks to the Jordan River, there in the Jordan is a man named John the Baptist, not the same John who wrote our letter, but another John that, that we call John the Baptist, and he was baptizing people. John was dedicated. His whole life was, was set apart for the purpose of tell everyone about the Messiah, tell everyone about the coming Messiah. That was what he did. And so John was baptizing people. Jesus walks up and asks to be baptized. Now John, realizing the magnitude of this moment, is a little hesitant to, to do this, but, but Jesus is telling you, so you, you do it. And so he agrees and he baptizes Jesus in the Jordan River. Now keep in mind, John, the writer of our letter, was a witness to this. He saw this happen. He saw this happen. So John the Baptist baptizes Jesus as Jesus went under that water, came back up. The scriptures paint this incredible scene. This incredible scene as he comes up, the father says, uh, this is my son. Well, I am well pleased that the same time, uh, uh, the spirit like a dove comes and, and rests on Jesus. It was this incredible moment where the Trinity is on display. Father, Son, Spirit, all on display here in that water. And so John, the writer of our letter, calls that very water to the witness stand. Calls the very water, that very water, the water of the, the Jordan, to bear witness that Jesus was exactly who he said he was. That Jesus was exactly who he said he was. God, man, Savior, the God-man, all of it. That he was exactly who he said he was. The very water is a witness. And he doesn't stop there because he calls witness number two is the blood. The blood. Now, the blood is, is life. It's, it's a symbol of life. And, and here this is a reference to the blood of Jesus Christ. This is a, a reference to the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, the atonement. Jesus giving his life for those who did not deserve it. 
This is a reference to, the, to God laying down his own life for us. This is the blood. And remember the context of this letter. I'm going to get a little nerdy, but just follow me. It'll make sense. The context of this letter, uh, as we've talked about throughout our time in, in, in 1 John, was that there was a group of people that stood up and said, no, we don't believe what you say about Jesus anymore. I mean, we believe about God, but, but not that Jesus was fully God, fully man. He was either God or he was man, but he was not both. So a group of people stood up and, and left the church to form a cult, leaving behind them pain and confusion in this church as, as a group of people just leave. And John writes in the midst of that, of that pain and that confusion, and I want to drill down into it because do you know what the source of the confusion and the misunderstanding and the disagreement was? The source of it was something that came to be called Gnosticism. I told you I'm getting nerdy, but it will make sense, I promise. I'm going to boil this all down, all right? Gnosticism. Uh, Gnosticism, here's what they believed, that Jesus was a man. He was born a man. He was an ordinary human, man, human, dude, all of that, just a normal guy, right? That Jesus was a normal guy right up into the age of about 30 when he stepped into the Jordan River and was baptized. And that beautiful scene, they believed, is the moment that God came and indwelled the man Jesus and became Jesus Christ. So he wasn't fully God. He was, he was, a, he was a man who God indwelled, and, and God indwelled him uh, from his baptism to the point of death. And here's what they believe, that, that through his ministry, that God was indwelling him. And then at that moment on the cross where he is, he is being crucified for sinners, there's no way that God himself would allow himself to be crucified. So in that moment, God withdraws himself from the man Jesus, leaving the man Jesus on the cross in that moment that, that Father, why have you forsaken me? And so they were, were preaching this message that Jesus wasn't God-man. He was a man who got indwelled for a time and then Left and, and do you know John's response to this? It's a theological term, baloney. <laughs> Nonsense. He comes against this, this hard because Jesus was the God-man. He was both God and man, fully God, fully man. That was, that was the conflict that, that we were seeing. And so to the Gnostic, the blood that poured out on the ground was not the blood of God, it's the blood of a man. But John comes against that and says, no, 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 no. The blood at the foot of that cross was the blood of Jesus Christ, the God-man. It was God's life, God's blood that was shed for you. That was shed for you, God's very life given for the life of others. And so the blood on the ground, just like the water of the Jordan, is a witness to the fact Jesus was exactly who he said he was. Witness number three. It's not over yet. This is when the lawyer's starting to get a little confident as he's bringing his third one out. Um, the Spirit. 
the Spirit. So the Holy Spirit, um, his primary purpose is to glorify and make much of Jesus Christ, to point people to Jesus Christ. That is his primary purpose, is to draw people to make much of Jesus Christ. Um, there have been several books written in the recent history who, um, who call the Holy Spirit a kind of a, a forgotten member of the Trinity, uh, a forgotten God. And there is certain, certainly some validity in that that there are certain groups of Christians who, who have forgotten that he is alive and active and that God moves and empowers and strengthens and leads, and we forgot about that. And so there is some truth to that. But think about it. If the Holy Spirit's primary purpose is to make much of Jesus, should we not see Jesus? Should the Holy Spirit not just point us to Jesus? I've heard the Holy Spirit referred to as the most humble member of the Trinity. Because he's constantly taking attention, focusing it onto, onto the Son. And, and that is, is what um, the Spirit does. He continually makes much of Jesus. So think about this. The Holy Spirit was present from the beginning. The Holy Spirit was present at Jesus' birth. Present through his life. Present in his death. Present when he resurrected. He was present and here the Holy Spirit now witnesses, gives his testimony to Jesus being exactly who he said he was. Remember, that's his purpose. And he's pointing people to Jesus saying it's, he is exactly who he said he was. And now John steps back. So imagine the lawyer stepping back and saying, now, just in case you didn't realize, I just gave you three witnesses and all three of them agreed. Listen to this in, in verse 7. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. So just in case you didn't know, you didn't see it, all three of these agree. And so John's not done yet, though. Let's call witness number four. Witness number four is the Father. We see in verse 9. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his son. In other words, this came from him. So church, from the beginning, before the world began, before the Genesis moment that we're going to work through here in a couple of weeks, before sin even, the grand plan, God's grand plan of redemption was already in place. If you think about it, God created Adam and Eve knowing what cost. Knowing the cost, he created Adam and Eve. That his plan was already in the works before the foundation of the world. And he prepared the way in a perfect moment, as the Bible says, in the fullness of time to send his son. In the fullness of time to send his son. So it is the father who spoke at Jesus' baptism. It is the Father that Jesus cried to and said, Father, if there be any other way. It's the Father who Jesus cried to. Um, it's the Father's plan that was perfectly fulfilled through the work of Jesus Christ. It was the Father's plan. And as if you needed any other witness, this is like the almighty trump card that God himself testifies to the fact that Jesus 
was exactly who he said he was. Now, remember the context. The group of people who left, what did they say? They said, we still believe in God. We just don't believe in this Jesus thing. We don't believe that Jesus was exactly who he said he was, but we still are good with God. We still believe in God. And John says, no, that's not an option because God himself testifies that Jesus is exactly who he said he is. It's not enough to just believe in the vague idea of God when the Father himself testifies that Jesus was the God-man, that Jesus was the God-man. So there is really no reason to continue, but John lays it on thicker and calls witness number five. Witness number five we will call the whoever. Uh, Verse 10, whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Every person who believes in the Son has the testimony in himself. In himself. So in other words, as John has said repeatedly through this letter, you can know that you know. You can know that you know that you know that he is the Christ. You can know that you know that you know that you are his. You can know that our very bones, as we sang this morning, our very bones cry out that this is true. That he is true. Our hearts Make it clear to ourselves that Jesus was exactly who he said he was. And and church, have you ever experienced that, by the way? Or you just have this peace, this assurance, that you know that you know? That, as John says, you, the whoever, testifies within himself, right? That we know that we know that we are his, that he is good, and that he is God. Um, Now, the scene in the courtroom, you have those five rock star witnesses, all each providing a testimony to one fact, each in unison saying the same thing, providing a testimony that all matches that God gave us eternal life, and this, is in his, and this life is in his son, that God gave us eternal life. Now, for a moment, I want to drill down just, just briefly on this idea of eternal life. Uh, This is a really big concept, and I think a lot of times it's misunderstood. Um, Eternal life for for so many is something that we think starts later. It's something that we, we will get to, that it will start at some point in the future. It's something that starts after our death, that then eternal life kicks in. Um, This is why I think a lot of people view Christianity as, as a religion of fire insurance. That, that as long as you're good with God, you do what you need to do to get good now, then you're going to be good later. And when eternity starts, then you'll have insurance against the fire, right? Um, that's why I think it is so hard for people to understand the beauty of the Christian life. This is why I think at funerals, that often that's the first moment that we look to eternity. Because it's something that we, that we view that starts then and has no bearing on the now. Um, I want to challenge that as we look at Scripture and ask, when does it begin? Does eternal life begin at your death? As if, like, right now you're living in this natural thing, and then at death, eternity starts. I want to challenge that as we look at Scriptures. Um, when you were saved, when you were made a new creation... When God gives you new birth, like we talked about last week, your eternal life starts now. 
It starts right now. It, your eternity starts now, uh, starts today. Here's my point. Don't wait till death. Don't wait till death to, to start your life with, with God because God saved you in your eternity. Look, look at the, the text. It says, God gave us eternity, eternal life. Not God will give us. God gave us eternal life in Jesus Christ. And listen to this, verse 12. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Church, how's that for clear? If you have the Son, you have life. If you do not have the Son, you do not have life. So according to this text, if you have Jesus, you have life. And remember, this isn't a, an after-you-die kind of life. This isn't a, something that starts later. It is that you will have life abundantly that starts now and is not stopped at your death. That it continues on after your death. That you have an active and a real relationship with God today. Through Jesus Christ, you have an active, real relationship that only gets intensified and strengthened as we die. And according to this text, if you do not have Jesus, if you do not have Jesus Christ, you do not have life. Again, this is not an after you die kind of thing. This is not an after you die. It is that you're experiencing a Christless present that will only continue and intensify after you die. That a Christless present leads into a Christless eternity. And John says this, verse 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. So he's saying, here's the reason why I'm telling you this, that you may know that you have eternal life. John says, I write this to you. I have presented these rock star witnesses to you. They've all said the same thing. They've all made this clear. I've, I've laid out my case. I'm screaming from the mountaintop. So you believe in the Son of God so that you know that you know that you know that you have eternal life with him, that you have abundant life. This is the purpose of this letter. This is the purpose of all this. That you may believe that Jesus is the Christ and that you may know that you know that you are his for all eternity. Do you know him? Do you know him? Because if you're here and this is you, let me, if you're here and this is you, um, and you would say, this is me, I know him. I know Jesus, I know that he came, he died for me, and I know that I am his, and I know that I am his for all eternity. I know that he came, he sacrificed for my sins, he took the punishment that I deserve, and he gave me the life that I did not deserve. I know that. I know that, church, if that's you, um, this is both the best and worst news that I could give you. Best and worst. So, so now, for many of you, I have your attention. How could this be bad news? Um, I want you to really think about this and consider this for a moment. Both the worst and the best. And, and of course, I always like to start with the bad news first. How could this be the worst news? For those of us who are in Christ, how could this be the worst news? news, because if, this is true, if, since this is true, 
That means that you have people in your life who you know, who you love, who you care for deeply. You have people in your life that right now are living a Christless present. And who, if they do not respond to the gospel, will, will live a Christless eternity. If any one of us ever preaches a you're going to hell message with a smirk or a smile on our face, if any one of us ever finds ourselves feeling, well, they'll get theirs, I think not only have we missed the heart of the gospel, we've missed the heart of the Father. The Father came not for those who are healthy, but for the sick. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. This is the heart of the Father. Um, and if you're here and this isn't your heart, it's time to check. It's time to check ourselves. Uh, let me just be really honest for a moment. I, so I'm a pastor, and I get the privilege, the responsibility, the joy of preaching and teaching from the Bible. I love it. I, t I, I promise you I take it very seriously. and It's a huge responsibility. There are some things that I wish I could preach, and there are some other things that I wish I didn't have to. I wish that I could stand up here and tell you that all roads lead to heaven. I wish that I could stand up here and say, everyone gets a second chance. I wish that I could stand up here and just say, everyone's going to be fine. God defines good people loosely, and if you're good, you're going to be okay. I wish... I wish that I could give you that message. But church, it isn't my message. And it isn't my place to change that message. The message is that there is in fact a hell. There is in fact a Christless eternity. And that is not something that I preach with exuberant joy. It is something I preach with a very heavy heart. But I preach it nonetheless because it is true. It is the truth. If we believe what we believe, church, we should be burdened for those who do not know him. If we truly believe what we believe, then we should have hearts that are burdened. Last week, as, as you know by now, there was a violent, tragic horrible act of terror uh, in Orlando, Florida at a, at a gay nightclub. I think it was Saturday night or early Sunday, Sunday morning. Um, as the news came out about this, and it's been coming out just on nonstop, but one of the most saddening, sickening, heartbreaking, revolting, horrible, terrible, I could just go on and on with my adjectives here, one of the worst responses that I have ever heard came from a pastor who made the news, <laughs> um, a pastor who said this in response to the violence, like in the midst of hurting, violence in the midst of it, said, good, I wish more of them would have been killed. And this made the news, this, what? What? Uh, hear me, I know 
that we feel the weight of what we believe our marriages are under attack. I know we feel the weight of, of, of families being under attack. I know that. I know that we believe homosexuality is a sin. I know that. I know that. But what also I know is that these people are living souls. That these people are living souls and our hearts should be broken. Should be absolutely broken. There were men and women who lost their lives. Did they know Jesus? Did they know Jesus? Did they believe in him? Our hearts should be broken. We should never rejoice for violence. Ever. Um, I want you to turn with me to Romans 9. Uh, Romans 9. Just for a moment, I want you to turn with me here. I want to read something together that honestly blows my mind. It, it blows my mind, and, and it's such a profound statement. It seems over the top, and it seems like it couldn't possibly be true. As you're getting there, let me give you a little context. So Paul, uh, who wrote Romans, had dedicated his life to uh, sharing the gospel, had dedicated himself, dedicated his life to this, uh, to both Jew and Gentile, dedicated his life to sharing, proclaiming Jesus. And by and large, Paul was seeing that a large number, the majority of Jewish uh, people, his brothers, Paul was Jewish, his brothers were rejecting the Messiah. By and large, he was noticing this. His heart was broken. And in this text, Paul expresses his heart. And I mean this, church, this is truly unthinkable. Romans 9, verse 1, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. It's almost as if he knows what I'm about to say is going to be so big that you're not going to believe it. But I promise you, I mean it. That God himself is my witness to this. I mean this. And then he says in verse 2, that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. Paul wishes, take this in, Paul wishes that he himself would be cut off if it meant that they wouldn't be. Paul would give up his, his knowing what he knows, give up his, his salvation if it meant that they could be saved. That's Imagine, church, knowing what you know, knowing that you know the truth, knowing that we believe that we are his, that, that he has purchased us, and having such an anguish, such a, a broken heart for those in our life that are apart from God, who have rejected God, having such an anguish. Imagine if your response to the lost world around you was, instead of, well, good riddance, was, oh, I wish that were me. If only they could have heard. I wish that was me. Church, do we have this heart? Do we have this kind of passion for the lost? Because if we believe the gospel, then I believe we're propelled by it to share it. 
I believe we are propelled by it to share it, and we need to pray for those who do not yet know, and we need to look for every opportunity that we could be used to proclaim this. Um, the goodness of the good news is brightest when it's set against the black backdrop. Um, we've used this analogy before. I'm going to use it again because I think it's a good one. I want you to think about your eyes for a moment. You know when you've been in a dark room for a while, and then you walk out, and you're like, Ugh. like imagine you went to a matinee movie, right? At 2 p.m., you're, you're there, you settle down, comfortable theater, your eyes adjust, and then you walk outside, and all of a sudden, your pupils are like, like blowing up, and you're, it's so, 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 so bright. Um, I think about the gospel a little bit like that. That it's like us convincing those who, who are in dark rooms, eyes fully adjusted, to come outside. It's so bright. It's so bright. Come outside. Come outside. You've never experienced it, but come outside. And I want to push this analogy just a little further. Because what happens when we're outside for a, an amount of time? All of a sudden, our pupils go back to normal. We adjust. Our eyes adjust. And, and what we have is our new normal. We get used to the brightness of the, of the sun. Um, and what happens when this happens? Two things. We forget how dark the darkness truly was. And we forget how bright the brightness truly is. It's like we get used to it. We get, we get um, that becomes our new normal. So to put it differently and to bring this to the gospel, what we're talking about right now, we forget the bad news is really that bad. And we forget that the good news is really that good. Church, I believe too often we are like this. We are living this Christian life. We're living in the light. In our eyes, where once we were blown away by the wonder of the brightness, now they've kind of adjusted a little bit. Our pupils have done their thing. And we have... We have we look around and this is our new normal and we've forgotten about the darkness. We've forgotten about those who have never experienced it. We've forgotten about those who are stuck in with, with fully adjusted eyes to the darkness. We've forgotten how beautiful and how bright that light truly is. And there are times that I think we just need to be reminded that there are lost people in our community who are living Christless lives. And if they don't respond, that they will live Christless eternities after they die. Oh, that we would have the heart of Paul to give everything up to see them respond to the gospel. And, and what is that? It's that God so loves us that he sent his son for us to live for us, to die for us to take my sin, to take my shame, to take my guilt, to take my place, and in turn to give me life, to give me hope, to give me his perfection, that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And just as Jesus rose and conquered death, that I know death is not my end. That death is not my end. And I will spend eternity with Christ because the good news is hope. The gospel is hope. The gospel is that we are loved and that he has made, God has made a way for us to be his children. 
That is the gospel. The good news is that we are loved by the Father. We are redeemed by the Son. We are indwelled and we are sealed forever by the Spirit. That is the gospel. That is the good news. And the gospel calls us, in closing, to two things. To respond and to share. To respond and to share. So church, we respond. Um, The good news is that God was good on your behalf. Amen? That we have done nothing. We cannot do anything to earn it. That God, as we say, didn't pick you for his team because you're awesome. He is awesome. And he loves you because he is awesome. He sent his son to die for you because he is awesome. You, You can't earn the good news. You just receive it and respond to it in faith. We respond, and and hear me, I am not just talking about those who have never responded to the gospel. I'm talking about all of us, because, because there are some of us in this room, and maybe you need to respond to the gospel for the first time. You've been in the dark room, you've never seen the light, and it is time to respond in faith to the gospel, that Jesus made a way for you to know that you know that you are his for all eternity. If that's you, praise God, church, respond, respond. But there are others of us in this room who, who it's not responding to the gospel the first time. Some of us are responding to the gospel for the hundredth time. The hundredth time where we have been walking around and our eyes are fully adjusted. Fully adjusted and we've lost the wonder of the brightness. We've called this in the past gospel amnesia. Gospel amnesia where, where we live our lives and somehow, some way, the wonder of the gospel has lost its wonder, and we have forgotten how truly wonderful and beautiful the gospel is. And once in a while, it's good just for us to stop, push the pause button, and to realize and to respond to the gospel again. The gospel calls us to respond, whether it be the first time or the hundredth time. The gospel calls us to respond. And also, church, the gospel calls us to share. There is a world who needs to hear this message. Jesus Christ is the only way. He is the truth. He is the life. And our hearts should be broken for those around us who do not know. The gospel has been given to you, I don't know if you realize this, to steward to share. The gospel has been given to you. Church, pray for opportunities. Pray that God would open doors, would would make a way for you to share. Pray for that. This week, pray for that, that he would direct your words. Remember, remember what we talked about is the Holy Spirit's primary job is to make much of Jesus Christ, right? How about church, we pray that, Spirit, would you do that through me? Would you do that through me? We're praying, Spirit, would you make much of Jesus, but would you use me? Would you use me in that process? Um, Who is your one this week? Who is the one person that you can share? Who is the one person in your life who you can share? When I say share, you do not need to know all the answers to share your faith. You do not need to know all the answers. You need to be obedient, bold and courageous, and full of love. 
Who is the one in your life that you can share with this week? And if no one comes to your mind, pray that God would put someone in your mind and pray that he would begin to open doors, that he would begin to prepare the heart. Because in that moment, it's not really your words. Spirit uses those who are vessels to be used. Because like I said, the Spirit's job is to make much of Jesus. How cool is it that we get to say, yes, use me to do that? Who is your one this week? We respond, we share, that more may know and more may believe. And I want to close with reading this verse again. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. Church, let's pray. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your gospel. The good news, God, that you are good when we are not. I thank you for sending your son to die on my behalf, to take my penalty, my death, and to give me your life. God, I just pray that you take what I know in my head and you just move it down 12 inches to my heart that I feel and I know that I know that I know that I am yours for all eternity. And I pray that 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 news, that good news, then propels us to be your light in our communities. God, your light in our communities. God, use us and open doors, and I pray that you bring our one to our mind and give us a calm confidence as we share, as we respond this week. In Jesus' name.